0: If everyone would like to open their Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people.
1: The passage that was read just a moment ago was taken from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, and the key statement in that narrative is in verse 11, a Savior has been born to you. The shepherds and the angels, though exciting as all that is, are minor players in this story, in which the Savior who has been born is the main character this is the greatest news that the world has ever heard this is (laughs) the good news in fact that's exactly what it says in verse 10 i bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people the one has been born the one who has been born will save people from their sins and protect them from god's judgment now, you remember when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant? He couldn't understand it because he knew that uh, she had been a virgin and certainly he had had no relations uh, with her. They were only engaged at that point. And when he found out, he was really upset and knew that there was only one of two choices that he could make, neither one of them being good. One was, according to the Old Testament law, it required that he have her stoned, because obviously she was an adulteress. Or he could divorce her quietly, as the law actually allows, so as not to cause a lot of embarrassment with the family. Well, we know now that as he was struggling with these decisions, trying to figure out exactly what he was going to do, the angel Gabriel told him that she was with child because God had planted a life in her womb. She was still a virgin, she was righteous, and God had chosen her to bring into the world the Messiah, his son. Then Joseph was instructed in Matthew chapter 1, 21, by the angel to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. So from the very beginning, the child was born. The child that was born was not just any old child. This was a long-awaited Savior of the world. This was the one who would save his people from their sins. This is the one who would finally be the lamb that would offer uh, the one perfect sacrifice, that would pay the penalty for sin, that would abolish the entire sacrificial system. The people had waited and waited and waited for that one to come Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 19 verse 10 for the son of man came to seek and what to save the lost in 1st John 4:14 4, John says and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world Jesus came to save the world he didn't come to be an example of nobility and morality and integrity. He didn't come to be an example of passivity. He didn't come to demonstrate patience and kindness and mercy and tenderness. He did all that. But he came to be the Savior of the world. And what we find in this passage is the angelic announcement that that, this Savior that they have been waiting for for so long has been born. The one of whom Luke writes about in the book of Acts in chapter 4, verse 12, who would be the Savior to the extent that salvation is found in no one else. for there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. And the great announcement of the passage here in verse 11 is, Today, a Savior has been born to you. Again, this is the greatest moment in the history of the world. A Savior would come and he would take on the judgment of God for sinners. He would be punished in our place. He would die under the execution of God's wrath. God would literally execute Jesus for your sins and for mine. Since the penalty was fully paid, and we just sung about that, God would then be free to forgive us and to provide us with, uh, offer us the eternal life because Christ had taken our sin upon himself. You know, last week we looked at the prophecy of Micah chapter 5 verse 2, which pinpointed the little town of Bethlehem as the birthplace of Jesus and how God literally moved heaven and earth and the politics and the political leaders and everything else to make that all happen. What's rather amazing is that after all that God did to orchestrate that and all that He 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 organized, Jesus was born in obscurity. Apparently, nobody around them knew. None of the people knew. None of the Romans knew. None of the inhabitants of Jerusalem or the visiting people of the folks in Jerusalem for that time knew. Just another baby being born. As they heard the cry of Jesus when he came into the world. But Joseph knew, and Mary knew. But it wasn't long till we come to verse 8 that an unlikely announcement is made. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Now remember, this is the greatest news in the history of mankind. There is a Savior. There is forgiveness of sin. The Messiah has come. And this news is going to be given to the most unlikely group of people. You know, if you were a PR agent, and you were designing a campaign to announce the Savior of the world who is going to be born, the last people you would go to were a bunch of shepherds. They were not the movers and shakers of society. They weren't the influencers of people. But that's exactly where God sent the message, in the fields nearby, nearby Bethlehem. There were shepherds there in the field. Nobody special, just shepherds. Even the Greek doesn't help us. You know, I love going to the Greeks. Oh, this is so cool. Here's what we know about these shepherds. There's nothing special about them. It was a Greek word for Shepherds, just everyday shepherds. And they really didn't care about these shepherds, the run of the mill. But if we go back to Isaiah 61, we have a prophecy that really has the Messiah himself, Christ himself, speaking. We call it the pre incarnate Christ. And he was speaking about his coming as Messiah. Pre incarnate, of course, means uh, his, the, the fact that he was alive before he was born as Messiah a baby. He could do that because being God, he always existed. So he says there in Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Now remember, this is the same passage that he he quotes or he he reads in Luke chapter 4 the temple. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. That word can also refer to the lowly to the humble, And so he makes the first announcement to the poor, lowly, humble shepherds. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 26, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose, <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? So that no one may boast before him. No one can say, I did it my way. Because there is no other way except through Jesus. You know, and I believe God is using the shepherds there as an example. God chose the lowly things of the world. The first announcement of the birth of the Messiah is made to the lowliest, commonest, and most unskilled peasants in, in Israel society. Yeah. They had become known as being insignificant as people. It's rather amazing, actually, if you look back into the Old Testament with this attitude towards shepherds, uh, where, where we find Abraham, who spent part of his life as a shepherd, Moses, Cared for the herds of his father-in-law in Midian as a shepherd. Of course, the great King David, he started off as a shepherd boy. But despite the lowly social status of the shepherds, God chose them first to announce the birth of his son. Now, what are they doing out in the fields? In verse 8, they were keeping watch over their flocks at night. Okay, that's normal. Every evening thing they did. Isn't it interesting that the announcement of this final and full sacrifice of the Lamb of God being born, slain from before the foundation of the world, the Savior of the world, was made to shepherds who were very likely tending sheep that were going to be sacrificed as a symbol of that final sacrifice of Jesus Christ? It was dark, it was quiet. The sheep had mostly bedded down for the night, some maybe moving around a little bit, eating some grass still, and all of a sudden something terrifying happens. Verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Now it's easy to think, ah, that happens all the time, right? Biblical times, lots of angels. It's normal. I mean, we, we read about it all the time, but it wasn't normal at all at that point, There hadn't been an account of anybody seeing an angel for 500 years. And now all of a sudden we start seeing angels. And it's not just any angel, it's the archangel Gabriel, the head angel. He appears to Zacharias and then he comes back and he appears to Mary and and then an angel, most likely Gabriel, appears to Joseph and now appearing to the shepherds. Their night was shattered by the sudden appearing of this angel. And what was even more terrifying for them is the next part, is in the next part of the verse. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And it says they were terrified. It wasn't like this cool glow that surrounded the angel. Or looking at the northern lights in Alaska, spectacular as they are, and think, oh, wow, cool, isn't that spectacular? That's, that's, that's really neat. No, this was the Shekinah glory of God. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. Do you know how significant that statement is? This is the greatest thing that struck me in this passage as I was preparing it has to be one of the high points in all of history here. If you go back and, and look at the topic of the glory of the Lord, we find that a simple definition of that is a manifestation of the presence of God in light. The manifestation of the presence of God in light. And we know that God doesn't have a body, he doesn't have a physical form, and when he revealed himself, it was some kind of a glowing, brilliant, shining, incomprehensible manifestation of light. A light so brilliant that a sinful person could not look on it and live. And that's why Moses could only get a glimpse of it hidden behind a rock. It's rather amazing if you think all the way back to Adam and Eve, they, they just walked in the presence of God. Why? There was no sin at that point. They had no sin. There was no fear. There was nothing going on there. But when they sinned, they were kicked out of the garden and removed from God's presence. He could no longer have fellowship with them. They were alienated from the glory of God completely. And it's a long time before we read about the glory of God uh, appearing again. In fact, all the way through to Exodus chapter 40, they they were finishing building the tabernacle where the Lord was going to be worshipped, and there was a place called the Holy of Holies. We've talked about that before, where God is going to take up His residence. And when the work was completed, according to Exodus 40, the Shekinah glory of God came out of heaven and came down, just filled that place with the presence of God. It was a monumental moment when God came back to His people and to establish a place of worship. And you remember that the glory of God at at one point then went up from the temple into the sky uh, as as a cloud by day and and a pillar of fire by night to guide His people. Then later on when the temple was uh, built, the actual temple was built by Solomon, the glory of God came down and God once again said, I'm going to take up residence and I want you to worship me and I want you to glorify me. But it wasn't too long after that until the people started turning against God. And you can read in Ezekiel chapters 8, 9, and 10 where the glory of God left. It departed and went away from the temple, went away from his people. A sad moment as the prophet stands there and he watches the glory of God go up out of the temple, over the gates, over the mountains, and disappears. God leaves Israel. And the glory of God never came back till this night. That's how significant that phrase is. When the glory of God appeared on earth, the great light that terrified those shepherds signified that the presence of God had come back into the world. But this time, the presence of God did not come back into a building or into a tent or into a little room called the Holy of Holies this time it came in human flesh as the Messiah. Remember later on in, in the life of Jesus in Matthew 17, we have, we've went through that when Jesus took three of his disciples up on the mountain, the mountain of transfiguration, and he gave them a glimpse of the glory, the glory of God. So this is not just some small event that the shepherds were experiencing here or some kind of glow from the angels. This is the glory of God coming. And it says they were terrified. That was the same reaction everybody, if you read through Scripture, it's the same reaction that everybody else had at the presence of God. The glory of God is terrifying when our lives are not right with Him. You remember when Isaiah saw God in a vision? He was terrified. In fact, he pronounced a curse on himself and assumed that he was going to die in an instant. When Ezekiel saw the glory of God in a vision, he fell down on his face and fainted. When John the Apostle saw the Shekinah glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1, it says he fell over like a dead man, fainted in terror. In the New Testament, when people saw Jesus and understood that he was God, They too were terrified. A woman we read about was healed by Jesus and says that she was absolutely terrified when she realized that this has to be God because he had healed her. The disciples who were out in a boat with Jesus, you remember that stormy night, it says they were afraid because of the storm, but you remember that when Jesus calmed the storm, it says they were terrified when they realized who he was. They were more afraid of having God in their boat than having a storm going on around them. Why? Because when a sinner realizes they're in the presence of God, they know that if I can see God, if I'm in the presence of God, he can see me. I see pure holiness, he sees sin, and I'm in deep trouble. Terrifying thing today to see so many people who could care less about who Jesus is. They think they're just fine the way they are. Perhaps they've convinced themselves that Jesus doesn't even exist. They go on living their lives without God, not realizing what's going to happen when the glory of God shines on them. So for the shepherds, this is a normal reaction. They were terrified. And verse 10 says, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. Easy to say, right? Why? Why do you say do not be afraid? Because I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. I'm not coming in judgment. God is not coming in judgment here. I'm coming in grace. I'm coming in mercy. I bring you good news. It comes from the verb uh euangelizo euangelizo is a greek word this is the word that we get evangelized from it just means good news it's good news that we have a saving god it's good news that he sent a savior it's good news that there's one who's come to take away sin it's good news that all our sin is forgiven forever that's the good news and this is such good news it ought to cause great joy which is absolutely the opposite of fear and terror Do not fear. Do not be afraid, but instead be filled with joy. That's what the presence of Christ does in a person's life. The news is good, folks, and this is what we tell the world, isn't it? This is what we've been told to tell the world. Go into all the world, proclaim the good news. Why? Because that's the purpose of the good news. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. It's for everybody. It was for Israel first, his chosen people, but then it was extended to everybody, for God so loved the world. Then the angel personalized it in verse 11. Listen. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, isn't that interesting? Today, in the town of David, an angel, a, a, a savior, has been born to you, to you personally, to you individually. God is starting with the lowly, the poor, the the little considered shepherds to show that how much He loves every single person individually. C.S. Lewis once wrote, talking about Christ, He died not for men. But for each man. If each man had been the only man made, he would have done no less. That's the extent of his love. There's a song by Kurt Kaiser from way back in 1975 that says, Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves you and me. There's another beautiful old Christmas carol that we often sing that asks the question, what child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? That's a real question, isn't it? What child is this? What child is this to you? Who is the baby in Bethlehem, born at first so anonymously to an anonymous young couple, Joseph and Mary? Who is this child whose birth established the world calendars? Who is this child more widely known than any other child ever born? Who is this child whose life and work has impacted more souls than all other influential people in history combined? Who is this child who determines the eternal eternal destiny of every human who has ever or will ever be born? Who is this child? The angel gives us the answer. He tells us very clearly and with no uncertain terms. He is the Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's who he is. He is the Savior. A Savior to save us from what? Do we really need a savior? You know, savior implies that we need to be saved from something, right? Saved is cinnamon. Uh, I like cinnamon. Synonym for, for rescued, which implies that there is some kind of threatening or dangerous or even desperate or deadly condition from which we need to be rescued from. Today, oftentimes, when people want to share the gospel, share the good news, it's easy to talk about Jesus bringing meaning to your life. You know, if you accept Jesus, he'll bring meaning to your life. He'll give you victory over your habits. He'll fill you with joy. He'll help make your dreams come true, and life will be happy, and everything will kind of come into order, and you won't have to worry about anything. And kind of building up what Jesus will do. But you know, I wonder if that may not be one of the reasons that many people have left the church. They've tried church, hoping to find happiness and fulfillment, because that's what's been promised. But they tried it for all the wrong reasons. I know somebody personally that this has happened to. They played at church for most of their lives. But without a heart change, it becomes hypocritical to them. And then it's so easy for them then to say, "Ah, all those church people, they're all a bunch of hypocrites. There are people who would look at the gospel and they would see it as a means to an end. They would see it as a means to happiness. And there's a sense in which the gospel does apply to all these things. I'm not negating any of that. Because when you come to Christ and you are are genuinely saved and you become a new creature and you belong to God and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our heart and we have a new reason to live and a hope of eternal life and the promise of heaven, it's wonderful. It does have a dramatic effect on the lack of fulfillment in our life. And we do receive the power of the Holy Spirit over debilitating habits and passions that come from our sinful nature. This is all true. But those are not the primary issues of salvation. The universal problem from which the Lord sent a Savior to deliver us is not the problem of purposelessness or unfulfilled lives. It's not the problem of passion or lust or unbreakable habits. It's a problem of sin and guilt. That's the issue. Is to rescue us from the consequence of our sin. Everybody falls into that category. Scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death. It tells us for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the issue. Sin. Because of our sin, we are separated from God and we are on our way to eternal hell. And, if we, need to be, and we need to be rescued from that. When we present the gospel, that's what we need to get to when we're talking with people. Because that's the crux of the issue. That's the real issue of the gospel. He and he alone is the Savior. But the angel also says he is Christ the Lord. He is Christ The Lord. The angel doesn't give us his earthly name here in this, but in Matthew it does, but here it doesn't. He doesn't say this is Jesus, but he gives us his title. His title is Christ the Lord, which means that he is both Christ and Lord, both Christos and Kyrios. The title Christ in the New Testament and Messiah in the Old Testament means the anointed one. Remember in Isaiah 61, I have been anointed. He is the anointed one. Jesus said that he came to fulfill the Old Testament. This is one of the areas that he fulfilled. In the Old Testament, there were three offices, three types of people who were anointed. A high priest was anointed, and he represented man to God. A prophet was anointed, he represented God to man. And a king was anointed, and he ruled God's people. So we can know Jesus In this way, that little child laying in that feeding trough in that little manger was a high priest who alone gives access to God. He was a prophet who spoke for God and only for God, and he was and is a king of kings. What child is this? That was this child. All of that was this child. So this is good news. The good news of great joy is for all peoples. And after giving the shepherds this spectacular news and description of this child, the the angel said, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. The king of kings, the priest of priests, the prophet of all prophets, being in very nature God, humbled himself and became nothing for you and for me. That's amazing. And he came down to our level to be relevant to us and to rescue us. Isaiah prophesied about this little child in chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All wrapped up in a little bundle laying in a manger. Then listen to what happens in verses 13 and 14. Suddenly, suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. How many angels? (laughs) Have no idea. The Greek word is plethos, a plethora of angels, a multitude innumerable, a huge number of angels. And what were they doing? They were doing what angels always do. They were praising God. Why? Because they understood what was happening at that moment. They were praising God because Jesus was born. They were praising God because a Savior had come. They were praising God for the Savior who is Christ the Lord. You see, they, they, they knew what was going on. They knew Jesus as a second person of the Trinity. They knew Christ before the Incarnation. They knew his glory, they knew of his riches, they knew of his majesty, they knew of his power. They also understood the fall of mankind and the devastation that was brought about by sin and Satan. And they knew that Jesus had the power to defeat Satan and sin, and they were excited about the salvation God was bringing, they were praising God. Saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to the, all those, to those on whom his favor rests. What kind of peace are we talking about? It's not earthly peace, peace. Remember, Jesus said, I, I the peace I give you is not what the world gives. It's not earthly peace. It's not peace and tranquility of mind necessarily. It's not peace as in the absence of trouble and tribulation and, and temptation. It's salvation peace. It's peace with God, having a relationship with him. It's a peace knowing that we are no longer under condemnation. It's peace having an assurance and a guarantee of heaven. And who's that going to be for? To those on whom his favor rests. Well, that that seems kind of picky, right? He's just going to pick and choose? Well, who is that? It's for all who call on the name of the Lord. So Paul tells us in Romans. It's for all who declare with their mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. He is Christ the Lord, and we need to acknowledge his lordship. Why? Because Jesus and Jesus only is the way, the truth, and the life. And anyone who accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior will receive God's peace and God's favor will rest upon them. You know, as I was studying and preparing for today, I, I couldn't help thinking about the tragedy that took place in the Midwest this, this past week with those 24 t- tornadoes that ripped through a number of states. And first responders have and are working 24 7. To save as many as possible. People were crying out to be saved. They were looking for a rescuer. They're looking for a savior to save them from certain death. And Jesus says, I have come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus was a first responder of all first responders. He came to rescue. He came to save. The problem is so many people don't know that they need to be saved. In fact, they're sure that they don't. In the candle factory that was demolished by those those tornadoes, they said there were about 100 people working in there that day. I don't know the number that were... Or saved, but they had the people that were there, they had no idea before they went to work that day that they were going to need to be rescued. If they had known that what was coming, they would have gotten themselves to safety. And the news says that they only probably had about 10 or 15 minutes warning. It's not enough. Folks, Scripture lays out and warns us very clearly clearly of the consequences of sin, which is death. It's clear. It is there. The warning is there. It's eternal death, separation from God for all of eternity, and God has laid his hands upon us to be his first responders. How are we doing? We need to go out. Into the highways and byways, and tell the people that a Savior is here. And what better time than at Christmas time? The Savior who is Christ the Lord. Folks, we need to go tell it on the mountains, over the hills, and everywhere. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, this morning we thank you for the fact that you loved us so much that you gave us the Savior, Christ the Lord. We thank you that we have accepted Jesus Christ and we have responded to that opportunity and we know the danger and, and we have called upon you as Lord. We've called upon you to be our Savior. But Father, there are so many around us that, that either have rejected that news or that they are just totally oblivious to that news and you have asked us to go and make disciples. Go and tell them the good news. Father, I pray that you renew the urgency in our hearts. Renew the burden in our hearts to share this good news of Jesus Christ, particularly during this Christmas season and then beyond. Thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you for the joy that you fill us with. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.